The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We're here for the next three hours. We want to take your calls. We want to hear your stories. We want to know what you're doing. Because I don't think the government exactly at this point in time knows what it's doing. Maybe Brendan Chilton can tell us. Brendan, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. I'm afraid that's a very tall order. I haven't got a clue either. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's almost just like the sort of People's Republic of Stepney or something now, isn't it? You know, well, I'll tell you what, when you come to Stepney, these are the rules. Uh, when you go to, um, you know, Onga, a bit further out, uh, it will change to these rules. And then when you get down to Ashford, where Brendan is, um, you can do this. I mean, there doesn't seem to be any kind of um, what you might call consistency of any, about any of it. Quite right. And uh, the, the I think the people now are just totally confused. I don't understand the rules. Uh, and then you're getting positions where, you know, regional mayors are saying they're going to enforce certain things and first ministers are going to enforce other bits, and but not that. And I think the people throughout this pandemic, all they have ever wanted is consistency and straightforward rules. Right the way through this pandemic, uh, from when we first started learning about coronavirus right up till the present day, government communications have been abysmal. Um, no one's known really what's going on. Nobody's known whether you've got to wear a mask here or when you've got to get jabbed there or who you can go and see and who you can't. And if there's one thing that comes out of this pandemic for the government and for not just the Conservatives, but for Labour win an election in the future as well, just for heaven's sake, get someone that's half decent at comms that can tell people what to do. Uh, because frankly, I think we've had so many unfair arrests. We've had police visiting people's houses when they thought they were obeying the rules. Uh, and it's just unfair on people that are trying to get on with their lives. And what's the point of telling everybody that they don't have to wear a mask anymore if almost every sort of metropolitan mayor and uh, including devolved parts of the country say, actually, no, we're not going to go along with that. You know, I don't understand how this is going to work. Well, quite right. And the, the, the other issue there, too, is a lot of the employers under those devolved uh, authorities are conflicted between British law and the uh, devolved laws in, in Wales yeah. and, of course, the devolved powers of the mayor. So which law or rule and regulation do they follow? Mm. Uh, it's putting an enormous unfair pressure on employees of, for example, in London, TfL, employees of uh, care uh, homes in the rest of the UK and those in the public services in Wales. It's not consistent. And actually, what we're going to end up with here is one uh, industry doing very well, and that's the lawyers. Uh, when various people uh, down the land get punished by the police or punished by the government or fined from local authorities because there's no consistency and there's total confusion. And that's not fair on the British people. Well, it really isn't because, I mean, I've been asking this question since probably about 24 hours ago without really getting a decent answer. What happens, for example, if somebody walks into uh, the tube station in London tomorrow, uh, sorry, on Monday afternoon, um, without wearing a mask and is told, would you please wear a mask and is handed one and that person says, no, thanks very much, I've decided I don't want to. What happens then? Your guess is as good as mine. I imagine there'll be a polite dispute and uh, we'll be very English about it. They may probably take the mask and pocket it and then just get on the train. But people shouldn't be put in this position where, you know, officials are telling them one thing. The prime minister, every time he gets up on television, tells the nation another. Devolved ministers are telling people to do other things. We just need one person at the top saying, do this, do that. And uh, as long as it's sensible and not ridiculous, uh, most people will go along with it. Um, so I think Boris, uh, Sadiq Khan, Burnham, the 
Drakeford in Wales and Surgeon in Scotland and all these other devolved mayors need to just get together and say, right, this is what we're going to do as one nation, as opposed to having four devolved arrangements mm. and then further devolved arrangements within the mayors, because people across this country have got businesses to run. Uh, just because some official in London and some official in Wales disagree, any business trading between London and Wales needs to know there's consistency. Any families that are going to visit older relatives or go to weddings or whatever else need consistency. You know, the politicians can faff around at the top, but the rest of us have got to get on with our lives. Well, exactly right. And what about the whole idea that, um, you know, they're sort of creating what I think is an un necessary division in the country because we're hearing uh, people like Tracy Brabin saying things like well of course it's the compassionate thing to do to wear a mask thereby suggesting that if you don't wear one you're somehow uh, not compassionate and you're somehow an in- terrible individual oh this this is going to be the new thing uh, you know where all those people that don't wear masks are, are going to be you know less than vermin and something you'd want to wipe off the bottom of your shoe yeah. whilst all those that do wear masks are going to be sort of you know, hallowed saints. Uh, the science around masks, as I understand it, is that it they don't offer massive protection no. uh, for you. They offer some protection to other people. But now we've all been vaccinated. I think we've both had both of our jabs. Most of the country's been jabbed. Uh, there is a slight issue with uh, the younger members of the population not taking it up as fast. But really, do we need these now? We've seen scenes of uh, you know, the people like Witty and Valance and all these other people attending Wimbledon telling us we need to wear yeah. masks while they're sitting there breathing exactly. beautiful, fresh air. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I mean, in, in what they would describe as a crowded place, by the way. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, in the football stadium the other night, which we won't talk about in great detail for obvious reasons. Uh, <laughs> but there was, uh, I did there, see no your tweet about it. that and I thought I quite I quite agreed with it, by the way, but we'll say no more about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, you know, we uh, people weren't wearing masks. I didn't see his, his Royal Highness the Duke of Cambridge wearing a mask in what was a very crowded place. Uh, so, again, you know, I think it's more of a virtue signalling thing. You know, if you've got a mask on, you're a good person, you know, you're, you're caring for other people, you know. And uh, what about the shop workers that have got to wear these things all day in the uh, warming temperature? You can see the sun behind me. Uh, these temperatures, people have got to wear masks all day in the shops if uh, these regulations continue. What about the poor people in care homes and in supermarkets, working class jobs? Uh, where they're not comfortably sitting at home in an air-conditioned room uh, on Zoom uh, or working away. They're out there grafting, and they're the people I think about in all this, and we shouldn't be forcing them to carry on doing it. Yeah, and strangely enough, these are not the people who are actually complaining uh, about having to go back to work and having to be in a dangerous environment because they don't have the choice, quite frankly. They just have to get on with it. Well, yeah, and they've been out there throughout throughout this whole thing. You know, TFL workers have been working, builders have been working, gardeners have been working, nurses and carers have been working, and food suppliers. Uh, They've all obeyed the rules. They've carried on working, and they're still working now. Mm. And frankly, this is a really, you know, the the chattering classes as ever, wanting to make themselves feel good, as they always do, Uh, and the rest of us just get on with life. Yeah, absolutely right. And looking at the front page of the Daily Telegraph today, I don't know if you've seen it, Brendan, but uh, we're hearing from Boris later today um, on this show. He's going to be speaking about levelling up and apparently uh, we're all looking forward to what he's going to be doing to improve the lot of the rest of the country apart from the South. But he's he's swearing uh, by all that is um, decent that he's not going to put uh, prices up in, in the South. People in the South are not going to be worse off. But at the same time, um, we're talking about getting taxed for eating 
and getting taxed for moving, i.e. green taxes on cars, green taxes on flying and going away on holiday, which is going to create a £34 billion black hole in the Treasury because they won't be collecting any road tax anymore. The last thing we need to be doing right now is raising taxes. Uh, We need people to have as much of their own money in their own pockets as possible so they can get out, spend, buy and use Mm. all that money that they've been... A lot of people have got quite wealthy throughout this pandemic. They haven't had to pay for train tickets. They haven't been buying the ridiculously priced coffees at those well-known coffee shops that we all use uh, when we come into London. Mm. Um, I've actually given up using them, to be honest. Well, I have to. I've worked out there's more milk in it than there is coffee, unless you have about 85 but, shots of coffee. Well, I'm a tight git anyway, so I'll take a thermos. <laughs> so, <you know. laughs> the, um, but these people have now got their money, and the last thing we want to be doing is taxing them to the hill. They've had a rotten year, and the aviation industry desperately needs custom you know the tourism industry desperately needs people spending their money and so if we are going to introduce Boris going to introduce all these new green taxes to make us all more environmentally conscious and let's stop eating sugar it's going to damage the economy tenfold which is already uh, basically bankrupted because we've borrowed more than we've ever borrowed before um it's the wrong measure at the wrong time if anything he needs to be cutting taxes to stimulate growth in the economy because what happened to that great idea that we were going to enter the sort of roaring 20s once the restrictions were all lifted? Because they seem still are, are kind of, it's almost as though they're still tied to the uh, to the buffers and they can't quite get the train off the uh, off the station uh, platform. I, I remember, uh, Mike, you know, New Year's Eve uh, 2020, when we were all going to be drinking cocktails and having great fun throughout the roaring 20s, new music and all this sort of stuff. What happened? We were locked up for a year. Yeah. <laughs> so it didn't quite happen. But you're, you're, you're completely right to say, uh, you know, the economy at the moment... Uh, most people, as I say, have quite a lot of people been on furlough. Uh, people have taken a hit to their incomes. But on the whole, uh, the country hasn't been impoverished. We've now got to pay off all this money, as you and I have discussed many, many times uh, on this show. And that's got to come through uh, one of three ways. We've either got to grow the economy at such an accelerated pace uh, that the growth uh, essentially mitigates all that borrowing or we've got to cut spending or we've got to raise taxes now none of the mps at the moment look as though they want to cut spending uh the government certainly uh, the certainly the backbench conservatives certainly won't want to be raising taxes but the government's got no real significant plan for accelerated growth and so we really are in a, a sticky position and something's got to give because the longer you store up the problems of not dealing with the fundamental uh, issues in the economy of all this debt over taxation and overspending, it's going to pile up and pile up and pile up. And at some point in the near future, uh, those chickens will come home to roost and it will be one almighty crash that none of us want. No, exactly right. Stay with us, Brendan, for a moment. We're just going to stop uh, and take stock for a second. Uh, we're talking to Brendan Chilton, who's CEO, of course, of the Independent Business Network. We're going to talk to him about the Labour Party. We're going to talk to him about a great many other things as well. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The Times this morning, uh, we're with Brendan Chilton. Brendan, the Times this morning has got uh, an awful lot of businesses unsure. Sainsbury's, I'm not quite sure what's going on with them, because they had issued a statement, I think, last week saying that they would welcome anyone into their shop. If they wanted to wear a mask, that was fine. If they didn't want to wear a mask, that was also fine. Uh, They seem to have now said uh, they're going to ask customers to keep wearing masks. Again, it's another one of these weird ones where you go, well, what happens if you don't want to? Are you going to not be let in? 
it, it, it's just ridiculous, Mike. And again, this is government cocking it up for business. Uh, what's it going to be like if you are, you know, a middle-aged or an older lady working in a supermarket or perhaps a young person doing a summer job and you are standing at the door and you've got a family or a group of lads or whoever who walk into that store not wearing masks? What do you tell them to do? Yeah. The government is making the lives of ordinary working people in their faffing about on this absolute nightmarish yes. because they're going to have to deal with it. It's not going to be Boris dealing with angry people uh, in supermarkets. It's not going to be the Chancellor uh, dealing with families that don't know whether they can or can't wear masks and having that awkward moment in the store. It's going to be ordinary working class people. Mm. And I think it's high time this government got its act together issued some clear guidance that business can follow and which we can all adhere to one way or the well, other. Well, or at least if they can. I mean, they have issued clear guidance, except that they've now allowed the local mayors and local uh, politicians to, to override it, which they shouldn't be able to do. That's the point. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. And I, and I was applauding Boris when he said, you know, we're going to leave it up to people's individual responsibility. But that's changed now because it's not going to be up to people's individual responsibility, really, because they're going to be made to feel in some ways if they're doing something bad, if they're not wearing a mask on public transport in, in Manchester and, and in Birmingham and in London. And I mean, I have to say, I know that uh, you are still a member of the Labour Party, but I mean, it seems to be driven by people who are in the Labour Party. I think, to be fair, Mark, I think there's an element of both, because Boris, although he has said, you know, you don't have to wear a mask, but it is expected that you should in certain places. Well, there's they're sort of putting that burden and pressure on people there. And mm. you're absolutely right. My lot are no better on this as well. Uh, the idea that all these TfL workers in London who haven't been wearing masks, I was in London on Friday last week. And half of the TFL people weren't wearing masks mm. anyway. So how on earth that's going to be enforced? I have no idea. Well, that's the um, thing. I mean, I've definitely seen a relaxation, I would say, uh, of the people on, on London transport who would otherwise have been telling people to wear masks as you walk into the station, you know, which I don't do anymore, basically. And a lot of other people don't do either. But the problem is that, that if, if uh, there's a sort of an uptake, if you like, by the old uh, Stasi of, uh, of Sadiq Khan's offices and of Andy Burnham's offices, then people are going to be confronted. And I think that's dangerous. I do too. And it's putting those people, as we were just saying, on the front line. You've got to deal with the customers, deal with the passengers uh, on TfL or in the shops or wherever else it might be in a really awkward position because the government have told them one thing. The devolved authorities have said another and ordinary people just want to know which one to follow. Um, we know uh, that the government have said, uh, you know, we don't have to wear masks, but in certain places it's expected. We've had senior ministers saying they would or they wouldn't wear masks in certain situations. Um, I think the best advice uh, that the British public uh, can take is don't listen to individual ministers for start, because what they choose to do personally is nothing to do with us. We should just follow the law. And if the law says we don't have to wear masks, despite what devolved guidance says, we don't have to wear them. Yes, and I think that's absolutely right. And I'd like to think that the sensible people in this country uh, will do what is the sensible thing, which is that if you really, really want to wear one, and if you're really frightened of mixing with other people, don't go yeah. to places where you're going to mix with other people. But for the rest of us, you know, we do what we want. Absolutely. We are a free country. Uh, we believe in the right and the freedom of the individual. If, if, for example, if I were to go to someone's house and they said, I'd feel a little bit more comfortable if you wore a mask, I'd probably go, yeah, all right, then, OK, just to make you feel comfortable. We can well, to sit in somebody's together. house, I think I'd be going back to the uh, pub, actually. I'd, yeah. I'd, thanks very much. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, maybe I probably would Maybe yeah. I'll see you when, you when your marbles <laughs> return. But let's talk finally about Sir Keir Starmer. Um, you know, I know that you don't want to talk about particularly the uh, the issues surrounding the football scenario, but, I mean, he made a bit of a meal of it all, didn't he, on from Wednesday, Prime Minister Questions? 
I I think this whole thing around taking the knee uh, has got to such an absurd level. Um, if you've got to kneel down uh, to show you're anti-racist, whatever next? You're going to do hopscotches to show you're not homophobe? Squats <laughs> to show you're not a sexist? I mean, it's so absurd. Yeah. The vast majority of people in this country are not racist. We Okay, we, we know there will always be an element of racism in society. Frankly, they're just idiots. Uh, but yes, I think we need to move on from this quite rapidly. Um, you know, the, the focus of the nation was on England winning that cup. We didn't quite manage to do it, unfortunately. Um, but the whole nation was united in condemning those few idiots uh, that were making racist comments online. Uh, it's since emerged that a lot of the abuse uh, that was uh, transmitted online actually came from abroad. I think about 40 percent of it. Uh, I saw a message this morning uh, saying that. Uh, whether they were Brits abroad or other people abroad is another matter. But I think the Labour Party now needs to start focusing on how we win back that red wall, mm. how we start making inroads in the south and how we start building a vision for the economy that will create jobs for the future to get businesses support and individual support so we can form the next government rather than partaking in what is essentially a phony culture war. Yeah. I know. A lot of people were laughing yesterday when uh, Keir Starmer said, I think Boris Johnson's trying to start a culture war. We were like, really? Really? Are you sure? <laughs> Brendan, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Brendan Chilton, CEO of the Independent Business Network. Here's the thing. Nobody really knows for sure what's going to happen on Monday. I think it could be a bit tricky for some people. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. They want everybody to be driving around in cars that have no emissions in the very near future, which means that they won't be able to charge them any road tax. So, unfortunately for Grant Shapps, he's just worked out that it means they won't have any money because there's billions and billions and billions and billions, nearly £40 billion collected in road tax, which they won't be collecting. So they'll have to get it some other way which is not the greatest idea. They're also going to be putting it on uh, flights as well. They're going to be making it more expensive for you to travel anywhere. So it's quite a good idea that we now talk to Mr Sean Tipton, uh, who's spokesperson for the Association of British Travel Agents, because once again, um, the cat has been thrown amongst the pigeons. If you're out in the Balearic, so you know anybody's out there, uh, they've just turned it from a green list country into an amber list country, which doesn't matter if you've been double jabbed, but does matter if you haven't. Sean, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Yes, spot on right. It's going to cause problems for people. I was just doing an interview and this woman phoned in. She was uh, due to go out to Mallorca in a week's time. She's 32. Yeah. She's got a couple of kids and that's causing her major problems, but she's only had one jab. So, yeah, it's going to cause problems. I mean, if, you, if you're lucky enough like me to have had two jabs, it, it doesn't make much difference, really. But not everybody's in that position. Well, that is the problem, isn't it? And, and while um, that will obviously affect individuals who are already there, who might have to come back before, um, uh, before Monday, it's also going to affect people, presumably, who have booked holidays. What would be the position for someone, say, for example, who was going to go towards the end of next week? Um, but now decides they don't want to go because if it's their choice not to go, that's not necessarily going to be compensated for, is it? No, it's not, Mike. You're quite right. So I think some people will lose out. But having said that, all throughout the pandemic, what we've seen at the very beginning, travel companies were sticking rigidly to their um, terms and conditions, which, as you know, if you don't go very late in the day, it's a 100 percent cancellation fee. But most of them have become a lot more flexible since then. So um, they'll probably, in, in most cases, allow people to change their booking to a later date. Mm. 
Uh, I don't think they've simply given their money back because it's not their fault either, is it really? But no. they probably let them do that. Yeah. No, I mean, that's the thing. And I've, and whenever I've spoken to, to colleagues of yours in the business before, it's more difficult, isn't it, to get a refund if you've booked, say, a villa uh, and a flight separately. You might maybe get one of them back, but not the other. Exactly, because it really does depend on the individual companies, what they choose to do. In my experience with airlines in particular, I mean, forget about the pandemic, but when we've had problems in the past, like changes to foreign office advice, they're generally not very keen on giving money back. They'll say, OK, well, you, you know, it's not our fault. The flight's still going. You can't have your money back at all. Or if they're a bit more generous, they'll let you change the dates. But yes, people are going to get caught out by this. And I think that's um, the, the change when government policy saying that you didn't have to self-isolate if you're double jab was, was a very positive one. But then again, you have the most popular holiday destination overseas for us. Big moves so swiftly from the green to the Amazon, it's going to cause problems because in any normal year, I'm not making this up, something like 5 million people from the UK go to the Balearics for their mm. holiday. Figures out maybe anything like that now, but that just goes to show how popular it is. And I think particularly young families are going to get caught out by yeah. this. And it's terrible news as well for, for the Spanish economy, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Well, I, I go to Spain a lot. I've got lots of friends there. And um, certainly somewhere like Mallorca, I mean, it's the, it is the single most important employer. Something like 60% of the population are involved in some way in, the, in servicing the tourist industry. It might be working in a restaurant, but obviously directly in a hotel, whatever it happens to be. That's not good news for them. And at the same time as we're doing this, if you look at what's happening in Europe, they're, they're, they've actually got very straightforward rules which say this. If you've been double vaccinated, you can travel without restrictions. If you haven't, then you're going to need to take a test. It's very straightforward, isn't it? Rather than moving countries from mm. this zone to that zone all the time. And that means people have much more degree of certainty about where they can and can and yeah. what they can do. And on, and back to why this has happened in the Balearics. I think it's, it is clear that the number of cases have gone up, but that's not because of tourism. It's actually, there have been a lot of Spanish school kids who've been locked up at home mm. for months on end. So they've gone with their mates to Mallorca or Ibiza, or happens to be. And what they've been doing, they've been having parties mm. and they're responsible for this spike at the moment. I know that's, Still a spike, isn't it? But it's but I, I it's not down to tourism. Really yeah, but this is. What, I mean, I've been saying this, Sean, for a very long time. That this is why they need to reevaluate the measurements that they use and the, the the conclusions that they draw from those same measurements. Because what we've seen uh, in the last few weeks in in this country is that yeah, infection rates have been going up, but that only really means that positive tests have been going up. And if the, the numbers of people going into hospitals and dying isn't going up, then it's not massively a problem. And the same goes for Spain. You know, when people yeah. can start going out and mixing and having parties, going to football matches and going to Wimbledon and all that, the rates are going to go up. But that doesn't mean you have to change the way you do everything. Yeah, and if yeah, exactly. And I, I went to Italy last year when we had those travel corridors for a short period of time. And it was very clear. I mean, I was staying in a hotel. They were incredibly strict about social distancing, mm. et cetera. You know, you had to do it, you had no choice. There was no buffet service, they, they brought things to your table. So I think from a tourism perspective, actually tourists are in a bit of a bubble where they're better protected than local people in some ways. So, and uh, there was a situation as well where Luxembourg was put on a, a no-go zone for a while. And that's because they were testing every single person in the country twice a week. So surprise, surprise, they were detecting more cases. So, so I think, yeah, there needs to be an element of looking at, you know, how you come to these decisions, why, rates have increased as you say hospitalization i know the spanish have been very you know they've actually said very strongly that look yeah of course cases have gone up for the reason i described earlier but very few people have actually had to go to hospitals so i think yeah more balanced approach to this because otherwise it's not just about you know my members losing business and they're in a really bad state at the moment obviously because of these kind of situations people need a holiday i mean it's not a luxury no. uh, particularly gone through really 
unpleasant times. That that woman I spoke to earlier, she she said I was desperate to take my kids away. Now yeah. she's you know she probably won't be, and that's and that's... also the kids need a holiday because you know they've had a dreadful, awful year. There's quite a lot of children now being taken out of school uh, by their parents so that they're not pinged in order to not be able to go on holiday. You know because so many kids are being sent home, so the schools have been completely wiped out. Loads of kids have had a rotten ghastly time of it you know sitting around at home not seeing any friends for months on end you know it's been ghastly and so they need a, a decent sort of you know run into the sea and, and sit around on the sand for a while I mean that's what we need no I agree and I, I don't think I'd like to be person, a parent having to say to the kids you're really looking forward to going on holiday oh sorry you're not going now and try to explain why mm. so yeah I mean I appreciate obviously government's got to take uh, public health has to come first but we need to look at it in a slightly more balanced way I think mm. and start looking about as you say about how you know the actual risk to people in terms of hospitalisation, I think right. is one thing. And meanwhile, we've got another couple of countries added to the green list. Croatia, I think, was one, wasn't it? Yes, it was. You're quite right. Hong Kong, uh, obviously another popular destination, but I think it's a long uh, way just, away. Yeah. <laughs> people still like going there. No, um, I'm but, sure uh, they do. I mean, it's one of the things at the moment. Like my, my, one of my worries about trying to even think about going anywhere is that if you were to go somewhere. Um, you feel like you don't want to go too far away in case it all goes wrong. Yeah, I think I, I, you're not alone in that. Uh, it's all about public confidence, isn't yeah. it, really? So, and I, I think really the one thing we've got to see is the NHS has done such a great job with the vaccination program. We need to see a benefit of that. We really do. And that's not just for travel, obviously. It's across the board, a number of different areas. And as I said, that's why the EU approach on this has been much more straightforward and simple. Double vaccinated, travel without restrictions, otherwise you get tested. And that's a nice, straightforward way to approach things. That it means that you know people are beginning to travel. And I think you're going to see over the course of the summer if we have, I, th- I believe the weather's going to improve, isn't it? <laughs> in the next few days. But if we get to August and it's a washout summer and people are be stuck here yeah. and not be able to go overseas, and they see images of Germans on the beach in Mallorca having a great time, and that's, I, I certainly wouldn't be too happy about that. But, no. So let's let's move forward. Let's get and also the other side to this back to holidays being i don't think they're a luxury they are a necessity if you look at the cost of holidays in the uk this year because the demand has gone through the roof <clears throat> so have the prices now not everybody can afford to pay those prices mm. so going overseas is particularly this year a much more affordable option and i think for many people it might be their only option yeah well some of the prices we've uh, seen for, for sort of caravans in in uh, strange and unusual parts of britain uh, have been quite eye-watering haven't they Exactly. And you could probably pay for a five star hotel in Spain for those prices for a longer period of time. So um, so I think this is something that really needs to be thought of, really. Mm. And, and in terms of people's mental health and well-being, I mean, holidays are, are, are probably, I think, for, in the normal years, the thing you look forward to most. Mm. But now it's, it's in a the unpleasant position we're in now is something that you might think might be taken away from you at the last moment. So that's, yeah. that could cause the reverse problem. So let's have a more balanced sensible approach to this to enable people to know that they can where they can go that they and that they will be able to go unless something drastically changes exactly and what are you hearing sean about the united states because a lot of people including me have family over there uh, that they'd like to go and visit um, and i haven't been there for two years to see my mother uh, which uh, people listening to this show are probably bored stupid listening to me saying it but i mean we keep being promised that we some kind of opening up of america but it still hasn't happened no, it hasn't. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's not just about going on holidays. I mean, you've got family overseas. My, my other half is Spanish. She hasn't seen her parents for quite some time. So um, in terms of America, there's been lots of talk about <clears throat> setting up a specific reciprocal agreement back to the travel mm. corridor again. But it's just talk at the moment. We haven't actually seen action on it. And also that you've got to bear in mind as well. There's the other side to all of this. We can make our decisions about, yes, you can go there. It's on an ambulance. It's on a green list, whatever. The country itself will have its own views about whether they're willing to accept British nationals 
at the moment. <clears throat> for example, <clears throat> Australia and New Zealand have been on the green list for quite some time, but you, you won't be able to go there. They won't let you in. So, and America, I think more positively though, America's vaccination program has gone really well, as has ours. So we're more likely to be able to go there. But as it stands, the Americans won't let us in unless you quarantine for quite yeah. some time. Yeah, so that's still a long way off by the looks of it. Sean, Well, thank hopefully you. they'll get to a conclusion soon. Well, let's hope so. Sean Tipton, spokesman for the Association of British Travel Agents. Thank you very much indeed. Have you booked another holiday uh, that we've had to have dashed onto the rocks of disappointment? Uh, because it's almost impossible now to figure out what to do. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's talk to Tom Lees, who's director of the Northern Policy Foundation. Tom, um, we got you on in the hopes that you'd be able to tell us precisely what the levelling up conversation was all about. Um, But from what I've seen so far of Boris's speech, there's not a great deal of uh, detail in it. Well, Mike, uh, it's a bit of an odd one, isn't it? He sort of started (laughs) off spending about five minutes apologising that we're all going to be released from some of these restrictions on Monday. Then he sort of spent a section apologising to places in the the South uh, who feel a bit left out by his levelling up for sort of agenda. Right. And then he finally uh, sort of came on to the actual topic in the end. Mm. Well, one, one of the big problems, of course, is there's so many of these kinds of speeches and often there's not really much meat on the bone about what actually they're going to do. No. I mean, that is often the problem, isn't it? Because this is a huge sort of project that he's embarking upon. I mean, the only thing that I can see really as an actual kind of definitive thing uh, is he wants to have teachers' starting salaries going up to £30,000. Now, I don't know whether that means that you will still have London waiting if you happen to work in London, in which case it's not really levelling up, is it? No. Well, one of, the, one of the big problems is that um, you know, when when the government talks about levelling up, they just they only talk about giving more cash everywhere. Yeah. That, that's how they sort of see things. That helps, of course, Mike. But, you know, take schools, for example. If you're giving more money to schools that are already poor and they've got poor leadership, bad discipline a bad culture, it's going to do it's going to make no difference whatsoever. Mm. We need to we need to get hold of some of these issues and get the right leadership in place. Yes. So, so with schools, with schools, for example, you know, I, I've been involved with with schools that have been failing for, for more than ten years, 
and nobody's actually got hold of them and said, you know what, head teacher, sling your hook. Yeah. We need somebody else in here who's going to change something. Right. And also there is this kind of bizarre perception, isn't there, that the levelling up agenda is all about making those poor people in the north of England, you know, as happy as those lucky people in the south of England. And it's really not that simple because, I mean, I can tell you, for example, where my kids live in, in South East England in Sussex, the bus services are absolutely, utterly abysmal. You know, if you don't have a car, you really can't go anywhere unless you happen to be on a, on a reasonably mainline train run, you know. And so people can't really get around. Older people can't go to the shops. You know, there's only like one bus in the morning and one bus in the afternoon. And I would like to see him talking about that kind of thing. And it may well be that in Manchester, the, the, the transportation is fine. So Manchester's transportation is better than it is in Sussex. So what's the levelling up about? No, no, you're quite right. That There are patches all around the country that need to, need to be levelled up and have some investment. One of the things that worries me a little bit is uh, when they talk about levelling up, it, it's only all about the infrastructure side of things, only building railways, only roads... Uh, and doing the transport links. There's no point putting in a great new uh, bus service or train link if uh, there's no job to go to or nothing to do at the end of it. Uh, it's just a road to nowhere, right? Yes, exactly. And there's plenty of those. Um, in fact, there's quite a lot of roads that are half built and haven't, and don't go anywhere, and you don't even know if they ever actually are going to go anywhere. Yeah, exactly, absolutely. What what we One of the big problems that he's got to overcome that, it, that he hasn't mentioned yet until five minutes ago when we stopped listening to him was actually changing the civil service machine and how it works mm. you know the vast majority of the decision makers at the top of the civil service uh they're, they're from a certain sort of background uh privately educated Ox oxbridge ppe they're the people who are actually going to make the decisions and have to deliver on some of these political promises yes unless, unless that sort of tier of decision makers change nothing else is going to move or shift and a great example of that today uh, with this business of the sugar and salt tax proposal, it's coming from a guy called Henry Dimbleby, uh, who's the author of a report about the food and the diet of Great Britain. Now, I've got nothing particularly against Old Etonians, but equally I've got no reason to think they're any better than the rest of us. And he's an Old Etonian. He's the son of one of the Dimblebys. He's the, he's the guy that used to own the Leon restaurant chain, which as far as I know is fast food. Whether you think it's healthy fast food or not, it's still fast food. Why the hell are we listening to this bloke? Because he went to Eton. And the thing is, you know, if you talk to people around here about Leon, you know, they say, why would I want to go and spend eight, nine, ten quid on a sandwich? On a chicken, and it's a, chi and it's a chicken burger that actually doesn't taste as good as the one you can get at McDonald's for one ninety nine. No, I, I, com I completely agree with you. The, the thing is that um, I, I had a quick look at that report this morning and, you know, they want to put this tax on sugar and fats to try and nudge people in the right direction. But what, what usually happens, of course, is that, the people who get whacked with it are the hardworking people on lower incomes who it sort of eats into their pockets. And it doesn't really have any any really material impact in actual obesity rates or anything else. No, right. And, and, and you know, the poverty levels in this country are bad in every part of the country, wouldn't you say? I mean, they are bad. They're, they're bad all over the place. Some some parts are worse than the mm. worse than others. Uh, and as the PM said, um, I don't know if you, you know this, Mike, but... If we look around Europe, uh, the UK is the third most regionally imbalanced out of any country. Yes, I heard him say that, worst. yeah. You know, I think there's only Poland uh, and another Eastern European country that's worse than us. Uh, and, and obviously what happened in Germany with, uh, you know, the divide and, and uh, uh, reunification, they're, they're now ahead of us in tackling some of these challenges. 
So, so it can be done, mm. um, but but we've been stubbornly at the top of the lead table of worst performers for a lot a long time now, decades. Yes. And what's your view of moving sort of government offices around the country? Because obviously we've seen um, the tax offices in, in Edinburgh, which seems to work reasonably well, the DVLA in in Wales. BBC moving to Salford for me didn't seem to do anything because all they did was move a load of people from London to Salford as opposed to actually hiring a lot of local people in Salford. Well, well, if, if you if you have a trip down the road to Media City in Salford, um, the BBC, to be fair to them, you know, it actually did help to regenerate a whole area uh, of the dockside. Yeah. And while they, they did shift a lot of the sort of front facing people from London, a lot of the producers, sound engineers, people in the background and producing and working on the shows, uh, they've started to recruit those locally. Right. Because what, what happens when you move people, it, it can be really good and effective if it's done right. You need to move the senior people. Uh, you need to need to move a good chunk of the people, not just a couple of hundred here, mm. a couple of hundred there. And if you do that, uh, you can have a real impact. And what happens is a lot of the folks in London, they like their lifestyles there. They don't want to move. So actually, it's an opportunity to recruit a lot of people from Manchester, Teesside, Leeds, Bradford, Halifax, mm. wherever they go to. So that's what usually happens in the process. A lot of people don't want to move because they like their lives, and that lets local people have some new job opportunities. Yeah. So, I mean, you would be in favour then of, saying picking up and moving lock, stock and barrel, the Ministry of Defence or the you know, Ministry of Health or something like that, providing that they didn't just move everybody out of London? No, no, they can... You've got to think about the departments which bit can move, but mm. generally, they don't need to be in Whitehall and Westminster, no. right? You know, you and I are talking now through Zoom. It's working perfectly well. Uh We've been all under house arrest for many months this year and people have been forced to do things differently. There's no reason why uh, Sir Humphrey and other permanent secretaries in Whitehall cannot be sent to Leeds, Bradford, uh, Birmingham, places that they're actually trying to help. Mm. And I think it changes perspectives. I think so. If your, whole if your whole life you've only been to, say, Westminster School, then you've gone to do PPE and then you join the civil service, you work your way up and then you're in charge of mega decisions... I think I think actually a shift in perspective would be really welcome. Mm. No, I think that's absolutely right. But we know that London-wise, let's just go back to Boris. He's still he's still going. I think. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Beth. Obviously, I uh, you know I reject that. Um, that's obviously uh, a question from Beth Rigby. Maybe she's asking if she's I being reckless again. Absolutely no place in our society, and I think that the England team represented the very best oh, of, still of us and our country. Oh, well, yeah, we're back the, to, so we're back to questions from the uh, from the old uh, assembled journos who are still banging on about racism. But so uh, we'll leave that alone. I think. Tom, listen, great to talk to you. I'm sure we'll talk to you again. Uh, Tom Lee's there, director of the Northern Policy Foundation, um, and there's an awful lot to talk about about the so-called levelling up of this country because it's nothing to do, in my view, with North and South, but it's everything to do with rich and poor, everything to do with class, everything to do uh, with some places where there are very few opportunities and other places where there are plenty. And it's not a simple north-south divide, is it? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, there can be no doubt, I think, uh, in anybody's mind, that there is an obesity problem uh, in this country, but there are many different ways that you could approach it. And uh, one of the people who talks about this an awful lot, of course, is Tam Fry, chair of the National Obesity Forum. Let's find out what he makes of Mr Dimbleby's suggestions. Tam, a very good afternoon to you. And a good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for, for, for joining me. Uh, tell me, first of all, what you make of, of his overall suggestions. <clears throat> I welcome them very much. Uh, one or two, I think, are going to have a little difficulty being put into practice. 
But the one that you've been most uh, fixed on is the uh, salt and sugar. And uh, I think that it will work. It's an extension of the very successful uh, sugary drinks industry tax, which came in in 2018. And uh, the chief medical officer in 2019 told Boris Johnson that it had been so successful that one of the first things that he should do is think of extending it not only to drinks, but also to foodstuffs. Yes. Now, and the reason that it, it will work, in my view, is that uh, industry and government have learned a huge amount from this levy. Uh, and uh, they are uh, in, in, in talks about how it will work. And it will work only well if industry take the message and start to reduce the quantities of salt, fat and sugar from their foodstuffs. Mm. If that happens, then we will all be better off. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with that at all. And I'm, I'm quite happy um, to help in any uh, campaign to actually make people who produce the food not produce it with such ghastly things in it. And I'm, I'm all for that. Uh, and I'm all for teaching people how to cook properly. I'm all for people teaching uh, their children how to cook properly. Um, and there's a lot we can do um, at that level. But, but why not focus, first of all, on the way that the food is produced by the companies that produce it, rather than focusing on things like, you know, uh, doctors and GPs. I mean, you're lucky enough you can get to see one if, you, if you're sick at the moment. But do we really need GPs prescribing vegetables for people? Well, I think that the, the, the problem is time. Uh, it's going to be much quicker and much easier to uh, change the recipes in foodstuffs than to change the whole of British agriculture. Uh, British agriculture has been um, untouched for the last 40, 50 years, and it's in time that uh, something is done about it. But that's going to take a long time. And the, the levy system... I think, although it'll take two or three years maybe to co to walk through, uh, then it's a much uh, quicker uh, return for your buck. Yes. But of course, there will always be uh, things that you can eat which are not going to be good for you. And I'm sure you're not in the business of banning people from eating things that are not good for them, Tam. Correct. I mean, people still have got the choice. They have the right to uh, uh, eat whatever they want to eat. But I think that people uh, would appreciate that government is actually taking a hand and trying to make sure that anything that they buy off the supermarket shelf is as healthy and good for them as possible. Mm. That is not the case at the moment. Yes. And when you say agriculture has been the same for 50 odd years, what do you mean by that? And what would you improve about it? Well, I'm, I'm not an agricultural specialist at all. Uh, and I can only take uh, the word from uh, my own advisors in the forum that uh, we've got a huge amount of land which is not good for growing things uh, and should be used for other purposes. And I think that Mr. Dimbleby is talking about afforestation because afforestation would actually take a lot of the harmful gases out of the uh, atmosphere, which is what we want to happen. Mm. Uh, there, then there is sugar. Uh, we are producing, we have two sources of sugar in this country. One is the sugar cane, which we import from the uh, uh, Caribbean. And the other one is the sugar beet. And we are producing too much of it. And if you've got too much of a product, then industry feel that they can have cheap sugar and uh, put it into our food. What I think we've got to do is to change the amount of money which farmers are paid for sugar, and they should be given incentives not to produce so much. 
So those are just two things that come off the top. But of I mean, my head. one of the side effects or side sort of um, un, maybe unintended consequences of our kind of obsession with sugar is that we've got all these artificial sweeteners now, which are also used, which in some ways are even less healthy, aren't they? Uh, they, they, some are and some aren't. I mean, there are some uh, sweeteners which um, are, are very difficult, uh, particularly aspartame. But uh, in the end, a little uh, sweetener here and there, uh, such as stevia, which is a natural sweetener, uh, is something which I think that industry should be using more of instead of sugar. Right. Now, according to one version of the story that I've read this morning, uh, the review suggests a £3 per kilogram tax on sugar and a £6 per kilogram tax on salt. Now, would that be a tax on the manufacturers or on the, on the consumers? Oh, no, no, that's a tax on the manufacturers. Okay. Another, another element of telling the manufacturers that they really have got to do something about the amount that they put in. Yes. And if you put the tax up, they're inclined to buy less, and therefore they have less to put in their products, and therefore we will be benefits of that. Would it not be tempting, though, for them to then use some of these substitutes? Uh, yes, it would be. Um, I haven't seen the full detail of the uh, do- of the document. It's a 290-page document, and it's going to take some time to get through. But I'm sure that Mr. Dimbleby has done his homework. Uh, he he was responsible for rewriting the school foods uh, uh, sc- scenario back in 2013. Very thorough man. He's got a lot of uh, uh, friends in the business and in in government and in economics who can guide him through that. And I think he's been very well advised, but I think there's still a lot of discussion to go on. Well, the, food, the food in schools, though, Tam, and I speak as a parent, is pretty awful. Uh, I haven't seen any particular improvement in the food that's served to my children. No, the one thing that he did, however, he wrote, he wrote the manual. It's up to the school system to actually put on the children's plate what is in the manual. Mm. And unfortunately, that is a very variable uh, area. Um, it, the the writing of it and, and the suggestions made in it are good. They're new, uh, healthy. Uh, if the schools were to follow the line, then we would have much healthier food. But yes, but I presume that- I presume that the schools would tell you that uh, the reason they provide the food that they provide is is down to cost, and yep. they can't afford to do it any different way. But I can tell you, for example, and I've said this many times until I'm blue in the face that you can go in to my son's school, into the canteen, and you can buy one of those, I think it's Yoohoo, uh, I can't remember what it's, the exact brand is, but it's a, it's a chocolate milkshake, effectively, uh, which is like a double chocolate milkshake. Um, and if you've bought one, you can then go back and buy another one. And you can have a pasty if you want for lunch, you can have pizza, um, you can have any number of, uh, of snacks throughout the course of the day. You know, I mean, it doesn't look as if anybody's even attempting to make it healthy. And it would be very simple, surely, to just not sell some of that stuff. Well, it, there, there is a lot of, um, uh, th- th- there's a government buying scheme, which uh, is also being given the once over in this document from Mr. Dimbleby. And that buying scheme has got lots of flaws in it. Mm. And I think that what will happen is that the, the government now will use the buying scheme for, for government offices, for, for, for the army, for the NHS and all those things in a much more concentrated fashion to make quite sure that what is in the document actually gets through to the plate. That has not happened. It's a good time now to do it. 
And is this happening in any other country? I mean, is there anywhere we could look to and see where a government has intervened in food production? Because, I mean, again, and I'm not making particularly a political point here, but philosophically, it's not a very conservative thing to do to tell um, a, a commercial operation how to make its commercial operation work. No, um, the, 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 the one country I can think of is, is, is Chile. And Chile have been very upfront in trying to make sure that their citizens are given the best deal in terms of uh, food. Uh, one thing in the Dimbleby report is this GP prescribing of fruit and vegetables. And that has been based on a project in, in Washington, D.C., where uh, apparently it has had great success. 50% of people there have, have lost their weight. The problem, however, in my view, is that what can happen in a small area in Washington may not be able to happen very well all over the country. Mm. It's going to need uh, general practitioners right behind this. And unfortunately, general practitioners at the moment are very overstretched. It will also need to have a very sophisticated distribution system. And I can see the supermarkets either individually or collectively helping there. If all that is put in place, with the uh, ministers uh, and the government saying, this is what you shall do, then I think it has success. Because one thing that we do not do any longer in this country is we don't eat the five portions of fruit and vegetable which we are advised to do. And so therefore this particular element of the plan is to reinforce that. Yes, but there's also, of course, fast food, which exists and I imagine will, will always exist, but, but now exists sort of in the turbocharged way because you now don't even have to walk out of your house to get it. You can just order it in. Yes, and, and, and that, that, of course, is a real problem. But uh, what, what hopefully will happen is that we will, uh, and a lot of money is going to be put into education, uh, in terms of uh, how how to recognize good food and how to prepare it. And if that happens, and it's not happening very much at the moment, except in some primary schools, if that happens, there will be not such a need to uh, rely on fast food. The reason why fast food people uh, make a lot of money and are so successful is that there are an abysmal number of uh, families in this country who, who don't know how to cook. And therefore, their reliance on fast food and ready ready made food is total. Mm. You, if you if you can teach them how to uh, buy vegetables and prepare vegetables and cook vegetables, then uh, is my opinion over a period of time, and this will all take some time and effort. They will then say, "Well, we don't want to go down the burger because we can actually prepare stuff in our own home." Yes, like and, and I mean, I would be more than happy uh, for them to continue to be able to buy burgers if that's what they want to do, but just not every single day. You know, like everything, you take it as a as a bit of a treat or something. That's what I do with with my kids. They will occasionally want to go to McDonald's, and they can, but I certainly wouldn't let them go every day. Um, and in fact, I've encouraged them to learn how to cook, in which they both do. And so, yeah. a lot of, uh, of work can be done at school level as well, can't it? Absolutely. And, and I mean, uh, your, your family and your republic uh, are, are beautifully put together and you, a treat is a treat. But there are, there are children in this country who are fed burgers nonstop three or four times a day. Kebabs. That, that is where the ruin happens. Yeah. What about this from Jane? She's texted into uh, uh, 87222. She says, my partner is a chef. So he, says, he says salt is a chemical and 70% of recipes use salt for a chemical reaction and not for taste. It is essential. So why tax it? Well, the, the, the reason for the taxing, and I, th I 
explain myself badly perhaps, but the reason for the tax is saying to industry, will you start to take uh, quantities of salt out? Mm. If you don't, we will tax you. Now, industry, like everything, everybody else, does not like paying money to the government. So if you will, that, that is the threat. And uh, if this uh, plan is put into operation by uh, uh, the government, uh, I see that working. And what is uh, the reason I say that is because of the sugary drinks levy was, first of all, seen as being something which would be impossible to implement and nobody would pay any attention to it. And bingo, when the, the first year result came out of the, uh, of the sugary drinks levy, it didn't get the money which the government thought it would get because people were taking sugar out of their products and people were then starting to buy drinks which were low sugar or no sugar. And that was a win-win situation mm. because it meant that the sugar uh, in, the, in circulation was less. It meant that over time people would get healthier. It's too early to say how successful it was been, but certainly with a 30% reduction of sugar within this time period is quite amazing. But there have been uh, quite a lot of these campaigns in the past time, haven't there? And uh, with all due respect to Mr Dimbleby, um, I'm not sure he really understands the families that, as you say, feed their kids burgers every single night because uh, he, that's not where he comes from. He doesn't really probably understand how those types of um, family units operate because we've got an awful lot of them in this country. Um, and he, and with, without wishing to disparage him for going to a very good public school, he went to Eton um, and he mixes with Boris Johnson and people like that. And so, you know, his knowledge of the ordinary sort of man and woman in the street, as it were, may not be great. Well, I'll, I'll go a long way to defend Mr. Dimbleby, even, even with you. Uh, I met him first uh, way back in the early uh, 2010s when he was preparing his school food plan. And I was actually quite uh, impressed at the amount of background work that he does uh, with his friend uh, John Vincent in those days to produce the document. He is a thorough man. And remember, he and John Vincent are atop the Leon chain, very successful. They know what people want. They know how much money people are prepared or not to pay, prepared to pay for it. They've uh, obviously been into the poorer areas as well. And it's the poorer areas, which is the uh, basic area which we've got to concentrate on. So I have a lot of faith in Mr. Dimbui. Whether or not he's been to Eton is another matter. Okay. But he, he, does it, he does his job. I'd be interested to see what the school dinners look like at Eton. I don't know whether you know that. No, we don't. I was I was lucky enough to go to Eden once and stand outside the main gates, but yes. that was all I got. Yeah, I've been to Windsor and seen them walking around as, well, as close as I got. Sam, thank you very much indeed. Tam Fry, chair of the National Obesity Forum, uh, who wants to help change the way that people eat in this country. I'm not sure uh, that it will be possible to do that, uh, but I'd love to hear from you uh, if you've got uh, something to say. Henry Dimbleby, uh, who formed, founded Leon, right, and Sustainable Restaurants, and is a very posh man. He may well be very clever, and he may well have lots of friends in high places um but leon really i mean i don't think he put any of those um uh, restaurants into poor parts of this country because people couldn't afford to pay seven quid for a chicken sandwich quite frankly uh, and i don't think it was any better than anything you would buy in mcdonald's that's just my view talk radio across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio 
If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.